You are listening to the podcast of Calvary Church in Irwin, Pennsylvania. For more information, you can visit us online at calvaryirwin.com. Today, we are uh, continuing a series we started last week. If you weren't with us, if you haven't been with us, we're going through a series here at Calvary called Rebuilding Relationships. And and uh, really what we're trying to talk about throughout this month is the importance of relationships that we have, the friendships around us. And, and over the last few years, a lot of those have kind of gone on the rocks. You know, we've found people who uh, uh, have cared for each other and been friends for years walk away from each other. We've seen people and in, in, in families separate uh, just because of issues that are uh, really they're dealing with. And we want to talk about how do we uh, lean into that and and bring healing. So last week, if you weren't with us, we talked about relational pain and, and really how uh, anytime you invite someone into a relationship or friendship, you're inviting them into pain. It's part of being in relationship with people. And, and our natural human tendency is to, to run from it, but uh, what we, what's, what's healthier is to lean into it and to, to explore what that pain is about and why that's there and to talk through that. Next week, we're gonna be talking about relational communication and what it looks like to be in proper, healthy communication with people that we call friends. Uh, it's, it's not to shove things under the rug and act like it's not there, and if you, you know, ignore it long enough, it'll go away, but how can we talk about things uh, in a proper way, have proper communication, healthy communication with people that we call friends, and then we're gonna close out the month talking about what it looks like to have relational health and how we can, can get there. Today, though, today we wanna have a really important, necessary conversation about relational healing. And uh, in a minute, well, I'm gonna invite a couple of friends up here that are gonna join me to help with this conversation and we'll have them uh, introduce themselves at that point. But what we wanna talk about today is the great divide that, uh, that is present uh, and has been present uh, in, in our world. And we're gonna look at their story, my friend's story of how, how hate and anger and rage has dominated a lot of their lives and uh, how today they could consider themselves friends and brothers. And the healing that you're gonna hear about today and that they experienced was nothing short of miraculous. Unfortunately, it should be something that isn't that uncommon. We should see it more in our world. Now, uh, if you're from this community specifically, our zip code, 15642, uh, you might not know this, but recent, after the recent census, we have over 45,000 people that live right here in 15642. It's the largest zip code in all of Westmoreland County, uh, which is pretty, pretty special and unique. Um, the demographic ba- breakdown of this community is, is also interesting. Uh, we, uh, as a community, 15642, our, our makeup of our community is 97.7% white, 0.7% point, African-American, 0.7% Asian, and then a bunch of other things. Needless to say, we are very white community, if you haven't figured that out. And um, that might seem unique to Norwin, but it's become more and more common. Uh, what's taking place in our world, in our country, is we become increasingly polarized over all kinds of different classifications, not just race. And, and our world is separating more and more. And, and the question we, we are walking through with this series, Rebuilding Relationships, uh, that we're exploring isn't, isn't how, how can we give in to the pain, the pressure, uh, and, and the patterns of our culture 
and, and deepen relationships only with those who are like us, or, or, or deepen our relationships with only those who uh, it's easy to do so with. But, but really, how can we learn from what the Apostle Paul wrote about to the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31? Here's what he said. He said, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And, and what we want to talk about today, here in a moment, isn't a, a should. This isn't something we should do. This is something we, we must do. The conversation we have today, I hope, will be a snapshot of what the true behaviors of a follower of Jesus should look like. We're, we're going to see the unmistakable evidence of Jesus in the lives of the two men we're going to talk to today. Not because of how they were raised, but because of what they chose to do with how they were raised. And I'm so excited and honored to, to have them with us. So if you can put your hands together this morning as we invite Dr. Kenneth Stevens, Dr. Richard Harris with us this morning. guys can have a seat. Thank you so much for being here. They came all the way from uh, warm, sunny Florida, and uh, thank you for bringing the sun and the heat with you. 82 yes. degrees when we left. 82. 82, 82 yeah. degrees. Um, it's not that right now. Uh, I don't know if you guys got to see any snowflakes this morning, but we there, did. Was, there was a few. There were a few snowflakes. Yes. It was, it's not accumulating yet. We still have some things to pray through. Uh, we'll get to that. We'll get that accumulation here. <laughs> We're going to have some all-night prayer meetings coming up so we can, you know, try to get a good foot snow, snowstorm here this year. I'm kidding. But um, thank you guys for being with us this morning. So kind of start things off, can you guys introduce yourselves a little bit? Yes, uh, good morning and thank you so, so much, uh, Nick, for inviting us out. I'm uh, Kenneth Stevens, Dr. Kenneth Stevens, uh, Southeastern University. I am... Um, I'm a retired military. I've spent 20 years uh, on active duty. My beautiful wife um, is also military. She spent 11 years, two combat tours. We actually met at Camp Stanley uh, in Weejambu, South Korea. So, wow. uh, and then God just worked that out. We're uh, married, um, four, four children, three boys, one girl, and uh, I'm associate pastor at Good Hope Missionary Baptist Church and also a professor at Southeastern University. That's awesome. That's awesome. Hi, I'm Dr. Richard C. Harris, and uh, also from Lakeland, also professor at uh, Southeastern University, also an associate pastor at Good Hope Missionary Baptist Church. My wife is with me, uh, Tricia, and we have two uh, grown daughters, and they have families. We have one granddaughter, and uh, we're just, just glad to be here, glad to share. We're so honored to have you guys here uh, today. Now, kind of uh, start things off, you both have... Uh, uh, the beginnings of your stories are very, very different. So share with us a little bit of kind of how this, your story starts. Sure, and I'm, I, I'm a stander and, and I move around. I'll try not to fall off stage. Yes, yes. Um, if you would just indulge me for a minute, I want to I bring you into my world if, if you permit me to. I, I want you to, I want to bring you um, into my world and that world is a world of, Hurt, hate, and healing. A world of hurt, hate, and healing. Back in 1983, I joined the Army 
June 30th, 1983, raise my right hand, defend the Constitution of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic. My first duty station was Fort Wainwright, Alaska. God has a sense of humor. I lived in Florida all my life. And when I got to Alaska, it was January, and it was below zero, and it was cold. While I was stationed in Alaska, my older brother, Special Jonathan Lee Early, was stationed at Fort Riley, Kansas. In 1984, two days before, I had just talked to my, my older brother, and I get a knock on the door. I need you to just, just come in my world and just imagine, uh, this is your brother. Mothers, this is your son. Fathers, this is your son. And I get a knock on my door, you need to call home. So I, I, I call home and my mom is crying and she tells me, your brother Jonathan um, is dead. And, I'm, and first I'm trying to figure, I just talked to him two days ago and I'm asking uh, how, what happened. She didn't have many details. So I got on a plane and on a long flight back from Alaska to Florida, I'm crying and I'm trying to figure this thing out. And I get home only to find out, I need you in my world. I need you to be who I'm 21 years old. I'm a private first class in the United States Army. My brother has been murdered. I was hurt, and that hurt began to transform to hate when we began to find out about the circumstances of how my brother was murdered. My brother was murdered on active duty by two white young private first class and private or uh, private who took the same oath of the constitution to defend his life to have his back they took his life they murdered my brother and then left him there to die on the floor he didn't die immediately the autopsy said he stayed there all night and died they left the very same people that was supposed to have his back and to protect his life they took his life. That's my brother, Jonathan Lee Early. He was a soldier serving in the United States Army and his own brothers in arms. Two white young men took his life. Well, as the court, as the, as the trial, and we found out through the trial, his wife plotted with these two young men that's your brother. Mothers, that's your son. Fathers, that's your son. They plotted, and she offered them $2,000 apiece to take his life. So she called him, lured him back to his, his, his uh, apartments. She lured him back there with the premise of reconciling because they were no longer together, he came back and they waited and they ambushed him and they killed him for offer of $2,000. I was 21 years old. I was raised in the church. But from that point on, my hurt went to hate and I hated white people. Didn't care who you were, Christian or non-Christian, I hated and I had a mistrust because all I could see at 21 years old was, was me being on active duty. When I'm in that foxhole, I have to know that I know that you have my back. That's my story. 
Nick, if you would have been with me on a warm summer night in Indiana, hot and humid, you would have seen two men take me and blindfold me, put me in a vehicle, drive me to an undisclosed location. They took me inside, they took the blindfold off, and there I was in a room with about a hundred or so people. It was a very dimly lit room, and at the, end of the, at the end of this long aisle was a makeshift altar, and there was a man standing behind that altar. And they marched me down the center of that aisle, and I went up to the altar. The man had me kneel and raise my right hand, and I took an oath. I took an oath that I would support and defend the United States of America. I took an oath of allegiance to Jesus Christ. I took an oath of allegiance to America to keep all of its laws. It was a very long oath. I also took an oath to white supremacy. And at the end of that three or four page oath, they had me stand. And I remember thinking, is that all there is? That's not so bad. That was all right. And then out of the corner of my eye, I saw this, I saw this man coming up behind me. And he was dressed all in black. And he was ceremoniously holding out a large hunting knife. And he offered it to the man behind the altar. Now, on that altar, there were several things. There were two cross swords. There was a Confederate flag and an American flag. There were several silver bowls. There was a Bible open to Romans chapter 12. And there was a cross. And the man took the, the large hunting knife. And again, I remember thinking, I wonder what they're going to do with that. I didn't have to wonder very long because two men grabbed my, my right arm and they shoved it up, they held it up, and the man behind the altar had been warming the blade of that hunting knife in the flames of the cross. Oh, did I mention the cross was on fire? And he took that hot blade, came down on the top of my wrist, sliced my wrist open, they turned my hand over and started draining my blood into one of the silver bowls. With my hand still shaking from the loss of blood, eventually the man behind the altar shoved a quill pin into my hand and he pushed that oath that I had just taken forward and said, sign. I dipped that quill pin into the bowl and I signed my name in my own blood I was 16 years old I had just joined the Ku Klux Klan now how for both of you on very different places how did hate drive your perspective and the decisions you make during that season of life how did that go well, hate was just kind of a part of my life. 
I grew up in a very good home. Uh, I would say I was one of the more privileged of the privileged. But yet, I grew up with being bullied, being made fun of, being called names, being picked on. I was, I was that little skinny runt of a kid. I'm trying to make up for it now, as you can see. <laughs> I was that kid that they took the lunch money away from on the playground. That was me. And I was, I was very sickly. And on top of it all, I had a speech impediment. From age four clear and through fifth grade, seven years, I was in speech therapy every single week to learn how to talk. And trust me, after I got out of speech therapy, I could talk, and I haven't shut up since, of course. <laughs> but I grew up angry, very angry. I grew up in an all-white school, segregated. We're talking the 1960s here. It was in Indiana. It was an all-white school, and I just grew up angry at the world for making fun of me and picking on me and bullying me. And then in Sixth grade, our, our school desegregated. Now there were African-American kids coming into what had been my, my school, my all-white school. I had literally, up until that point, never spoken to an African-American child my age. I don't think I'd ever even been in the same room with one. And I looked at them and I said, you know what? They're kind of out of their element. They were from the other end of town. They're in my school. Maybe this is a group of kids that I can pick on, that I can bully, and I'll be the bully for once. And that's exactly what I started doing. By my eighth grade, uh, by my eighth grade year, my eighth grade yearbook, I still have it. Someone signed it to Richard. Grand Dragon of the KKK. Keep those inward in line. I had a reputation. Well, that reputation, I never thought would ever go anywhere. But little did I know, one of the teachers in my middle school was an active member of the Ku Klux Klan. And that teacher was reporting back to headquarters about this young boy named Richard Harris. Let's keep an eye on him. He really believes the same way we believe. He might be beneficial to us one of these days. Dr. Stevens, how about you? How, how did hate really drive a lot of your perspective and decisions during that time? Um, you know, like Dr. Harris, um, my school was desegregated at first. I mean, it was segregated and then desegregated. Um, and then... Growing up where I grew up at, believe it or not, my best friend, one of my best friends, Rusty Cochran, lived across the street from me. White, white, white young man. Uh, we grew up elementary, high school, played football together. Parents gave me my first car. So my perspective of white people at that time was kind and honest and trustworthy. After what had transpired and happened to my brother, um, it was just the rage of mistrust um, especially 
under the circumstances of being on active duty and being his life being taken. So it drove the decisions I made, you know, and it didn't help. After I left Alaska, um, I ended up a couple of years later at um, Fort Eustis, Virginia. I was in TRADOC. I was a staff sergeant in the United States Army. I was a staff sergeant. Again, raised my right hand to defend the Constitution. I was a staff sergeant on active duty. I got up one morning, as we always do, to go do PT, physical fitness. I got on my Army uh, physical fitness uniform, car running low on gas. I'm already dealing with the death of my brother and the mistrust, and I pull up to this gas station. I get out. Back then, you had to pay the, pay the pump. I go up, the pay the guy through the window, give him $20. I want to get $20 on, on pump three. Got Army across the top here. You know what he told me? We don't serve the N-words here. Would not turn the pump on. So at this gas station, I could not get gas in the, at this gas station. But here it is. I'm telling you that I'll give my life for this country. So it, it permeated. It, 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 I carried that. I carried that in the decisions. If I were to see you, I had a mistrust. I didn't want to be one-on-one -on -one with you. If I were to see you, I would not get in an elevator by myself with you. I had a mistrust because I did not know what was what. And if you didn't look like me, I did not think you had my back. I understand. Man, that's horrible. Now, uh, Dr. Harris, you, you mentioned you, you joined uh, the KKK. What kind of transpired from there? How did, how did things go in those early years? Well, I didn't know, but they had been watching me for several years. And then they just kind of showed up in my life uh, when I was 16. That was when you could become a full member of the Klan. They, they showed up in my life, and, and here's, here's what they told me. They knew that my mother had, had passed away when I was 14, suddenly, they knew that my oldest brother was a doctor, married, had a family, didn't move out of the house, of course. They knew my other older brother was at college. My dad was busy running his business and the one that he inherited from my mother. And so trying to keep these two businesses going, I hardly ever saw my father. And I was this lonely latchkey kid, very shy, very quiet, did not make friends easily. And the clan came along and said, hey, you know what? We could be your family. We, we, we could be your brothers and sisters and, and mother and father and, and, and you're, you're just like us and you believe the same things we do and, and, and we'll protect you and, and no one will ever bully you again. That sounded pretty good to this 16-year-old. And so I joined. I did not understand that they had put me on the fast track to leadership because there was a man down in Louisiana who was the Grand Dragon of Louisiana during that time. A young man, his name was David Dukes. And David had became the youngest Grand Dragon ever at age 17. And he was this new breed of clan. We're in the 1970s now, early 70s. David is, David is clean cut and he's educated and he's articulate. That was going to be the new face of the Klan and he was getting people joining like, like crazy. And Indiana said, we need someone like David Dukes. 
they saw that someone in me. Because I felt right at home on a stage, on a platform, I could speak. They said, this man could be our David Dukes. And they started grooming me. By the time I was 18, I was the second youngest grand dragon in the clan. And now I was running Indiana. Indiana is the largest clan state north of the Mason-Dixon line. And I was 18 years old. That'll go to your head real quick. How did that, how did that go, being 18, grand dragon? What, what did the f- kind of following years look like? Well, I had power now. That's what I wanted. I had power. And nobody ever messed with me. No one ever got close to me. I had four armed bodyguards. And they protected me wherever I went. And I thought, finally, I'm somebody important. And so I, I was Grand Dragon of the clan, And I knew all of these uh, names that you would find in the newspapers uh, because they had, were in the Klan during the Civil Rights Movement and that kind of thing. And I, fe- I felt like I was, really, I was really finally someone special. And people respected me. But two years later, Two years later, I found myself crying myself to sleep every night. And I realized I wasn't going to get out. I realized I'd ruined my life. And I didn't know what to do. I had no clue. Then I got word that one of my four armed bodyguards was going to assassinate me or going to allow it to happen. And then I was really scared. I'd already been shot once. And now one of my bodyguards wasn't going to protect me. So I didn't know what to do. I decided what I needed was a higher office. Higher office would give me more protection, better protection. So I called up the Imperial Wizard, the head of the nation. And I said, Bill, I, I want a national office. I think I'm ready for it. I'd been dragon of, the clan, of Indiana for a couple of years. And he said, well, he said, I think you're ready too, and you've done a great job. He said, the only, the only office that we have coming open is going to be the national chaplain for the Klan. You see, a lot of people don't understand, but the Klan honestly believes they're the true Christians in this world. And I said, I don't know anything about being a chaplain, a preacher. He says, well, the guy we got in there now doesn't seem to know too much either. He says, says, but you'd be a great one. Here's what you do. All you got to do is put some good sounding, start reading the Bible and put some good sounding scripture verses in your speeches. Start sounding religious, I'll take care of the rest. I knew what that meant. That meant that they would go to uh, the current chaplain and say, We think it's time for you to step down from your position. If you don't want to step down from your position, tell us where you'd like your body to be found. We'll arrange it. That's how elections happened in the Klan. So I said, all right. So I decided, yes, I'll do it. That night, I began reading the Bible. I had to to find it and, you know, brush it off some. 
I didn't, and this is a big book. I didn't, I didn't know where to read. I didn't know where to go. I didn't know one book from the other. I should have started in Genesis, but I know now the Holy Spirit was guiding me and directing me. The Holy Spirit led me to the Gospel of John. I didn't know what John was. Well, I started reading in the Gospel of John, and I read. I said, this is great. These are the stories of Jesus. I'll quote Jesus. How much more religious can you get? I got to John chapter 4, and that's when the light bulb went on. John chapter 4 is a story. It's, it's one of the favorite, uh, clan chaplain's favorite stories. The clan loves it. It's the Samaritan woman at the well. I started reading that. I said, oh, I know this story. I've heard the clan chaplains preach on this a lot, Samaritan woman at the well. They did teach me one thing that was right, and that was what a Samaritan was. A Samaritan was half Jewish, half Gentile, or as the clan would say, a race mixer, a half-breed. And so, you know, I'm reading along. It's like, yeah, I, I know this story. I'm reading along, and, and you know the story. Jesus, Jesus comes up to this well, this Samaritan woman's there, and he asks the Samaritan woman for a drink, and she says, she says, why are you asking me for a drink? You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. And then the Bible says, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. That's the end of the Samaritan woman at the well story. Jews do not associate with Samaritans. The clan would say, well, we don't, we, we, we're smarter than Jews, aren't we? Oh, yeah, sure. I'd only met one Jew in my entire life at that time. Sure, we, yeah, we're smarter than Jews. Well, if Jews know enough not to associate with Samaritans, race mixers, then we don't either. Right, right. And Jesus hates race mixers. Yeah, that's right. The only thing is I'm reading the Bible for myself now. I'm reading this story for the first time myself, and I realize that wasn't the end of the story. Jesus accepted this Samaritan woman. She became a believer in him. And then she went back and she brought a whole town full of Samaritans. And they became believers in him. And he accepted all of them. The whole point of the story was really Jesus loves Samaritans. Race mixers. That's when the light bulb went on. Nick, it went on and it went on very bright. I immediately saw the clan has been lying to me all these years. The clan says they're the true Christians. They're not following the Bible. I wasn't stupid. I could read. They lied to me. I kept up, I stayed up all night that night. I kept reading. I read the entire Gospel of John. And I kept finding place after place after place where the clan had twisted scriptures and lied and, and just totally, totally misrepresented what the Bible clearly said. I didn't know how to pray. I said something like this, God, if there is any way you can get me out of this alive, I want out, and I want to find out what a real Christian is, and I want to be one. And I quit the clan the next day. How did you get out? Long, long story short, they put a gun to my head, and they finally said, all right, we're going to let you out. You keep your mouth shut. That's fine with me. I just wanted out. 
I wanted to find out the truth. I wanted to find out what a real Christian was, and I really did want to be one because I had thought I was one all those years, and I did keep my mouth shut for 13 years. Never said a word. If anyone asked me about it, I'd, I'd tell them the truth. I'd say, yeah. But basically, I just kept quiet, went on, started studying. For, I felt called in the ministry, started studying for the ministry, and uh, eventually got married, started having children, and I kept my mouth shut for about 13 years. That's awesome. Uh, Dr. Stevens, share with us kind of how, how did your uh, transformation happen in your life from, from that place of hate you were in? And, and it's interesting. Um, my transformation started, believe it or not, um, it was the day before my brother's funeral. Um, the parents of my brother's ex-wife called my mom. The parents called her. She picked up, um, we're, in the, we're, we're there in the living room and she's talking to him. And right then and there, my mom forgave her parents, her daughter, and both those young men. I'm, I'm, I have to be real with you all. I'm 21 years old, I'm not there. I, w- I was not there. Um, but my mom showed me, you know, the Bible says train up a child in the way they could, in the way they would go. And when they grow old, they will not depart from it. I grew up in the church. I grew up in the church, the same church I am in now. I grew up in that church and I knew, I knew God, but I had a hurt. You know, hurt is an emotion uh, inflicted personally or inflicted from someone else. Hate is, is an action that's learned. So that's, that hate, I, I was hurting because of, but my mom showed me that love. And, and the more and more I began to think about that as I walked through this, this journey, because it was a long journey. This, my transformation didn't happen overnight. I was still on active duty. I was serving. I was still interacting. But the more and more I began to truly, truly grow closer to Christ, the more and more I began to see the love of Christ. And, and, and just what, even, to, to, even today, just my, the love that my mother showed uh, in, in her forgiveness. And, and so I, I began to just read more and more scriptures and, and begin to see, um, you know, that, that how, how the Bible spoke about, you know, the, the, the strength of, of love. When we talk about faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. I, I, it, it is what began to transform me. We know love covers a multitude of sin. It, I, was, I was allowing the hate um, to, 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 to overshadow my healing. I, I couldn't heal so when we talk about, it began with, there's two things, and Dr. Harris and I, we talk about this, a reconciliation. You know, there's, there's no transformation without reconciliation. I had to, I had to reconcile, I had to, I had to come to terms with that, and I had to forgive in order to be transformed into the Christian that I am today. So that's what, it, 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 just scripture after scripture, living in, uh, in the circle of love and the love that Christ uh, that Christ showed. Uh, so that's, that's how my transformation, and I, and I have to live that, and I'll be honest, I have to live that every day in order to get past just some of the, some of the ugliness that, yeah. th- that, I, that I deal with. It's a remarkable, remarkable journey. For you, Dr. Harris, share a little bit about how you, um, I think it's a pa- fascinating story, you started sharing about your story publicly, and then I want to I ask you guys how you guys met too, so share with us that. 
All right. So I did keep my mouth shut for 13 years. Uh, fast forward, I'm a senior pastor. Uh, I'm also a professor at Purdue University in Indiana. And uh, halfway through one of the uh, semesters, uh, this African-American lady who was, was older than me, uh, I was probably 30 or so, 32. Uh, she was probably 10 years older than me. She was taking my, my class. And you know, no one really knew who I was much. And she came up after class and she said, she said, uh, Professor Harris, she said, have you ever heard of a man named Dick Haywood? And I said, yeah, Dick Haywood. Yeah, he used to be the Grand Dragon of the Klan uh, here in Indiana back in the 70s. And she goes, yeah, you're him. And I said, yeah, that was my name in the Klan. Uh, she goes, why don't you tell what God has done for you and how he's changed your life? And I said, well, there's two reasons. Number one, no one's ever asked me. And number two, I like living. <laughs> and she said, she said, well, you're going to speak to the group that I'm in charge of. I said, what group is that? She was an African-American lady. And she said, I'm in ch I, I run the uh, student, uh, student uh, the cultural society of Purdue University. And I laughed. I said, you mean the Black Student Union? And she goes, well, that's what we used to be called. And I said, I'm not going to tell the Black Student Union of Purdue University, hey, guess what? I used to be the dragon of the Klan here in Indiana. Are you nuts? She says, well, you really don't have any choice. And she reached in her, in her bag. She pulled out a flyer with my picture on it, my name, and it said, former Grand Dragon of the Indiana Klan to speak to Student Cultural Society of Purdue. I said, I don't know where you got that from, but tear it up, throw it away. I'm not doing it. And she says, yes, you are next Tuesday. <laughs> I said, no, I'm not. And she goes, oh, yeah, you are because you don't really have much of a choice because I figured out who you were because I heard you speak at a Klan rally. I'm the one who, who organized the anti-Klan demonstration, and I've been sitting here trying to figure out who, why do I know this voice? And she goes, I figured out who you were. And while we've been in class this last hour, 300 of these have been posted all over campus. <laughs> so I thought to myself, all right, fine, she's got me. There's no doubt about it. All right, I could speak because I happen to know never more than, you know, a dozen people ever showed up for the Student Cultural Society uh, meetings. And so I said, all right, all right, I'll speak. Uh, there was like 250, 300 people showed up. And so again, I thought, it'll be all right, I'll speak. That'll be the end of it. That'll be done. I'll tell these people my story, and that's it. Uh, she also didn't tell me that she had invited the Associated Press. <laughs> the next morning, I'm in every newspaper in the Midwest with headlines that read things like, Former Indiana KKK Grand Dragon denounces racism and the Klan. And that, that, that will change your life real quick. Shortly after that, you had to be re uh, relocated. I, I've survived three assassination attempts from the Klan. They suddenly weren't my friends anymore. I don't know why, but it... And, and so, yeah, so, so they... they basically had to relocate me as far away from Indiana as they could get me to go. 
And so uh, I, that's when my bishop moved me to Florida. He said, you'll be safe there. And I said, okay, great. And he goes, and I happened to check, you speak French. I said, I don't speak French. I had took four years of high school French. Do you know how much you can speak French with four years of high school? Yeah. Okay, I, I, can go, I could go into McDonald's if they had a French menu in order. That'd be about it. And he goes, so what we're doing is I'm sending you down. You're going to co-pastor a Haitian congregation because they speak French too. I said, you're sending the former Grand Dragon of the Klan to co-pastor a Haitian congregation. God does have a sense of humor. It was one of the best things that ever happened to me. That's awesome. Now, uh, Dr. Stevens, share, how, how did you guys meet? Uh, yeah, God truly does have a, a sense of humor. Well, um, I retired um, in El Paso, Texas in 2003. My wife and I, we were, and our family, we were there. We were comfortable. Uh, retired. Then I got a GS job. I was a GS-12 working for the government. You know, you don't, you don't ever leave government jobs. My wife had a great job there. We're making a lot of money. And uh, June of 2005, God called me back to Polk County. I told God I wasn't going back to Polk County in Florida. Um, you, you know you don't tell God what you're not going to do. By December, from June to by December of 2005, um, I resigned without even having a job. I resigned from the government. They thought I lost my mind um, because, you know, the, the average income, especially in, in Polk County, is about 25, 26,000. My wife and I were making together well over six figures, and God, I, I, God and I had a long talk about that, but he won. And uh, we, got back to, we got back to Polk County. I didn't have a job. Uh, Southeastern uh, had an, um, some openings, and uh, I applied, and it was the um, DCAE, Department of what is it? Uh, Continuing and Adult Education, and uh, Dr. Harris and Tom Malcolm were, were there, and I came in and applied for a job, and that's when I first met, uh, was hired on, and it's interesting, um, got to talking with Dr. Harris after the interview and found out that he was a grand, you know, ex-grand dragon of the KKK. So, of course, I came home and I told, I told my, my wife that, and we had some long conversations uh, about that. Um, and, and it's interesting um, because I'm, I'm over our men's ministry in our church. In our church. Um, and at that time, I told the, I told the story. Um, our oldest member was 92 years old. We had several that were 80s, some 70s, um, and we have a men's retreat. And so we we had a men's retreat out at Lake Yale, and I I um, invited Dr. Harris to come out and speak without telling these men that his of his, of his background. And I also asked Dr. Harris to bring all of his clan regalia. Um, and, and you have to understand when um, one of our, our our chairman of deacons told me a story uh, about um, when he grew up, they had, a, um, they had a routine or a plan. Whenever they would see cross burnings in the front yard or the Klan would come up, they would run out the back door and they would hide under the tobacco plants as kids. That's what they would do. And, I, and, and I, I'm still a little younger then. I, I didn't think about, think about it. Then I, I invited Dr. Harris out. And when Dr. Harris came out and he began to tell his story, um, it was, it was the most, and I still get teary-eyed because it was the most moving experience um, that I've ever experienced in my, in my entire life. You, you have to understand what that robe symbolized and what 
the KKK symbolized, especially, I was born in 63. These, these gentlemen, I'm talking 90, 80s, and 70s and what they endured. And I got an ex-grand dragon standing up before them, transformed, just like Saul here in, and now Paul, but standing there with something that terrorized them. And I'll let Dr. Harris finish how that, how that, um, how that transpired. So, so I told my story. It's all African-Americans, uh, men, sitting in front of me. And afterwards, I'm beginning to pack things up. And a couple of the men came up and they said, Dr. Harris, can we touch your robes? And I said, sure, you can touch them. I don't care. They're just, just robes. Have at it. I don't care. And I looked over. I was packing things up. And I looked over and they were rubbing. They're made of satin. They were rubbing the satin in their robes in, their, in, in between their hands and tears were coming down their face. And I immediately thought, oh no, I, I've upset them. I, I shouldn't have brought these. Oh, that was dumb. And then one of them told me, they said, thank you for letting us touch these for the first time in our lives. We feel like we have power over them. Because we held these in our hands. And we're not afraid of them anymore. Yeah, you have to, and, and, and you have to understand, as an African American, the only time we would see one of those if we were being hung by a rope or being beaten. And here it is, we're, we're, they were literally touching, touching these, these things. And, and, it, and it took away the fear of that. It, it removed um, the fear of this, of this, of this hood and this, and this robe. So it's powerful, so powerful. How do you deal differently today? Uh, Asking Dr. Stevens specifically, how do you deal differently today with mistreatment, hate, and the brokenness of our nation than maybe you did at, at a younger age? Wow. Let me, let me do it like this. I have a spoken word. Can you see me? I'm standing right here. Can you see me? Not as the world sees me all dark and full of fear. Can you see me? I'm standing right here. I only ask because I really need to know. Is there somewhere else I need to stand? Is there somewhere else I need to go? Before you see me for who I am and not for what you think you know. Can you see me? America. I'm standing right here. My life is an open book filled with pages of invisible words that seem to appear and disappear. Each new chapter begins as it ends with one question that's still, still yet to be answered today. Can you see me? America. I'm standing right here. Am I a person? Am I a place? Am I a thing? 
Am I living in the United States of America where everyone comes in search of the American dream? A dream where we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men, that all men, that all men are created equal. That they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights and among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Can you see me? America. I'm standing right here. Can you see my life, my liberty, my happiness? What does all that mean? You can't see me. You can't hear me. You can't feel me. It really, really doesn't mean a thing. Can you see me? I'm a son. I'm a brother. I'm a father. I'm a veteran. I'm a pastor. I'm a professor. I'm a Christian, and I'm a man who just happens to be African-American. Until you can see past this, you'll never be able to see any of that. Thank you. Dr. Stevens, thank you for letting us see you and hearing you and uh, seeing your heart. It means so much. Um, both of you men, uh, your story is so powerful, and we are so grateful to see the work of Jesus in your lives, that it's not just an accident that you fell into. It's the choices that you've made to follow him, to be vulnerable for us so we can learn and we can grow. And we need that. We desperately need that. And I've told you guys this, you know, in our community, um, I do not want to wait for a tragedy to push this conversation. Amen. And as followers of Jesus and as a church, we should lead the way. And we're going to lead the way. We're going to push it. And I, I appreciate both of your stories. I want to close with one last piece. Uh, Dr. Harris, you've told the story of when, you know, you pastor, you've, you, you pastor a good hope and um, and uh, when you when you uh, celebrate communion kind of the impact of that can you share that sure Thank you. you know I'm the, I'm the first white pastor at Good Hope Missionary Baptist Church it's a church that was started by freed slaves over 130 years ago and I'm the first white pastor so the first white pastor that they get on staff is the former dragon of the Klan <laughs> at, at an, at an all-black, uh, historically, uh, historically black church. Uh, when I serve communion, communion is very special to me because when I, serve, when I serve the elements to the communicants, oftentimes when, I'm, when, I'm, when I'm, I'm reaching out the elements to serve them and I reach out my right arm, 
Sometimes my sleeve comes up just enough that I can see that scar. And that scar reminds me that I entered into a blood covenant with evil and hatred and racism. And that scar is there. I have been out for almost 45 years, but that scar still stares me in my face. And I know what it means. But then I shift my focus to the elements that I'm offering the communicants. And they remind me that there is a blood covenant that is stronger than that. And I've entered into that blood covenant with my Savior Jesus who shed his blood on the cross so that that hatred can be replaced by love. That evil can be replaced with good. And the racism can be replaced with the brotherhood. Of man. Communion is very special to me. Amen. Both of you men are uh, such a remarkable example of God's grace and his mercy. And uh, as the worship team comes today and we prepare to, to wrap up here, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for being vulnerable with us today and thank you. Thank sharing you. your story. And you. we're so grateful and better. Uh, hopefully followers of Jesus because of the example you both have, have set for us. Bless you. And uh, I want to mention one, one thing. Um, Dr. Harris has his book out in the uh, foyer you can get, and they're going to be out there if you want to talk to them uh, after service here. And we are just grateful for the investment you've made into our church, into our congregation, for your story. And I know there's a, a documentary coming out mm-hmm. uh, soon about, uh, about your story as well. Yes, there's a documentary coming out uh, about about the two of us, and uh, you know, there's a course that we teach uh, together at Southeastern University, interracial communication, because that's where it's got to start. It's got Amen. to start. Let the conversation begin before the crisis sets in. Yeah. Amen. 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 Thank you, Dr. Harris, Dr. Stevens. Give it up for them this morning. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. There you go. Thank you. Thank you so much. You guys can be seated. As we wrap up this morning, uh, we're going to dismiss, and we've got, you know, go see the fire trucks and all, all the fun stuff today. Um, I just wanted to, to wrap up with this. You need to hear a story like this. Uh, we can walk away with a lot of different responses. And we can walk away with a response of, man, that was a good story. I learned something in my head. I've, 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 I've learned some information, heard a story that hopefully I can live my life in, in reflecting about. And, and I hope you do that. I hope that what you heard today will help shift stereotypes, maybe bias that you're not even realizing and evident, that's evident. I hope it does shift that. I hope it changes 
how you view people who are different than you, how you interact with them, how you accept them and embrace them, and how God can use you to, to love them. But, but I hope there's something else that happens. You can see a man like Dr. Harris so transformed, full of hate, as he said, establish a covenant with evil. Stand up here and talk about his love for God and for his friends. How can that happen? That's not an accident. See, here's the deal. Some, some people, I've heard them say this many times, they walk into church and they think, man, I'm amazed that the place hasn't burned down or collapsed when I walk through the doors of that place. Uh, all the stuff in my life and, and all the things I've done and my family and, and I don't belong in church. I'm not like a church person. I, I, that's not my, my thing. I'm not religious. And, and that's cool. We're not religious either. And, and honestly, following Jesus isn't about being religious. And if it is, I'm sorry because it's so much more than that. What you saw represented here, two lives transformed, happens because of the love, grace, and transformation that Jesus makes in our lives. This isn't about being a Bible thumper or a church person. This is about recognizing why you were made, created on this earth. God has such an incredible purpose for your life. Maybe you've taken different twists and turns and paths, but I want you to know that if God could forgive these men, God can forgive you. And he loves you so deeply, so much that he, he circled the calendar today that November 13th, 2022, he wanted you here. He wanted you watching online so that you could hear this, that God loves you in spite of the reasons why he shouldn't, in spite of the reasons why he should push you aside, overlook you, and, and, and move on. He loves you so deeply. And not only does he love you, he has a plan and a purpose for you that would blow your mind. If you asked Dr. Harris, Dr. Stevens, a number of decades ago, if they would be sharing a story like this, they might have said, that's crazy. But look at what God can do. God can do it in your life. And I wanna pray for you here in a minute and give you an opportunity to say, you know what? Not, not to join a church, not, not to do any, but to say, you know what? I wanna start living my life in the context of Jesus. Meaning I wanna live my life recognizing he can actually forgive me and he's forgiven me. And I wanna live in a way to fulfill the purpose that he put inside of me the moment I was born in my mother's womb. He has a purpose for you. Maybe you haven't realized it yet, but he wants to help you step into that. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? God, I thank you so much for all that you've done. I thank you for your love, but thank you for the opportunity to hear a story, two stories like this today. God, I pray for those that are watching online, those that are here, Lord, that, that, that God, you are just working on their hearts. God, you brought them here, not by accident, but for this moment. God, I pray that today isn't a day where people become religious. Lord, let it not happen. Let today be a day, Lord, where we discover our reason for being. Our reason that we are on this earth, that there's a God who created us and knows all the good and the bad and the ugly about us and still loves us and can forgive us. As you're continuing to pray this morning, if you're here and you'd say, Nick, I wanna make that step. I wanna take that step to follow Jesus, meaning I wanna accept his forgiveness for my life and my past, and I wanna, I wanna commit my life. As, as Dr. Harris said, I wanna establish that covenant with God. I wanna commit my life to follow his plan, his purpose, to live out his purpose for my life. 
If that's you this morning, I'm just gonna count to three. I'm gonna ask you to reach your hand toward heaven just as an act of your will to say, God, that's me. I wanna follow Jesus. We're not, no one's looking around. If you're watching online, you can do this as well. On the count of three, one, two, three. If that's you this morning, I just wanna ask you to reach your hand toward heaven. Amen, amen. Anyone else today? Amen. You can put your hands down. I'm gonna pray a prayer, and I want everyone to pray this with me. I just wanna lead you in this prayer. Not, not some magic prayer, it's just a conversation with God, that's all prayer is. My hope is that this is the first of many, many, many conversations you can have with God who loves you so deeply. Would you all pray this prayer with me together? Dear God, thank you for loving me with all of my mistakes, all of my pain, all my hurt. Thank you for embracing me. Today, I accept your forgiveness. I commit to live for your purposes. Give me the strength and the courage to follow you all the days of my life and to show your love to the world around me. In Jesus' name, amen. This is Pastor Nick Poole, the lead pastor at Calvary. We're so glad you joined us for today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed the message. At Calvary Church, we're passionate about leading people into an overflowing life with Jesus. We would love the opportunity to connect with you on your faith journey and hear what God is doing in your life or join you in prayer for any needs you might have. You can visit us online at calvaryirwin.com or send us an email at info at calvaryirwin.com. On our website, you'll find previous week's messages, a list of upcoming events, as well as resources designed to help you take those next steps on your journey of faith. See you next week, and may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace.